in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk report highlights the planet Venus. From the Northeast Audubon Society, Jim and Pat Sanders report on the red-tailed hawk in their archive segment for the birds. Stephanie Phillips speaks with consultant Lori Raskin on the subject of carbon sequestration, introducing her new segment series on forest management for Now You Know. Farming Country introduces farm girl Dana, who shares with us an accidental farm podcast episode featuring her guest, Bill Seemering. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, but first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. Minneapolis police are temporarily halting the use of no-knock warrants after an officer fatally shot a man during a SWAT team raid this week. Matt Sepik of Minnesota Public Radio has more. Amir Locke is seen on body camera video stirring underneath a blanket and holding a handgun as police enter the apartment where he was staying. Within seconds, an officer shoots the 22-year-old black man. Police say Locke was not the focus of the warrant. During the moratorium on no-knock raids, Mayor Jacob Fry says police will work with national experts to review the city's policy. That's Matt Sepik reporting. The first Olympic medals have been awarded in Beijing, and winter sport powerhouse Norway is off to a strong start, as NPR's Brian Mann reports. Therese Johug is a sports star in Norway, and the cross-country skier dominated the rest of the pack Saturday in a 15-kilometer race under brilliant blue skies on a course made of artificial snow. Hers was the very first gold medal of these games. American skier Jesse Diggins from Vermont, who won the first-ever Olympic gold medal in cross-country skiing for the U.S. four years ago in Pyeongchang, finished this race well back in sixth place. Norway also edged out France for an early gold medal in a men's and women's biathlon relay, a sport that combined shooting and cross-country skiing. Brian Mann, NPR News, Beijing. China, meanwhile, has claimed its first gold medal in the Beijing Olympics, winning the short track speed skating mixed team relay title by just half a skate length. The team finished in just over two minutes and 37 seconds over the 2,000-meter sprint, beating out second place Italy and third place Hungary. In Britain, another lawmaker from Prime Minister Boris Johnson's governing Conservative Party is calling on him to resign. Vicki Barker reports from London. Former cabinet minister Nicholas Gibb is the 15th conservative lawmaker known to have submitted a letter of no confidence in Boris Johnson. It would take 54 such letters to clear the way for a vote to unseat him midterm. Writing in the Daily Telegraph, Gibb says his constituents are furious that Johnson and his aides quote, flagrantly disregarded their own ban on social gatherings. The latest fuel for that fire reports that British police investigating the alleged COVID breaches now have a photograph of Johnson holding a beer at an illegal birthday gathering. A new poll finds 60 percent of Britons believe Johnson should resign. For NPR News, I'm Vicki Barker in London. Ten people were injured this morning after a fire broke out in a New York City apartment building in the Bronx. Officials say the blaze began on the third floor of a six-story building and spread to two other floors. 
Seven people were taken to a hospital, but none of the injuries are considered to be life-threatening. Last month, a fire in another Bronx apartment building killed 17 people. You're listening to NPR News. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections. With showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Jim and Pat Sanders report on the red-tailed hawk from their archive segment for the birds. In a new segment series for Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips speaks with consultant Lori Raskin on the subject of carbon sequestration. Farm girl Dana from her Accidental Farm podcast series shares an episode that features her guest and friend, Bill Seemering. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with his Star Talk report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. All this month, Venus will appear in the eastern sky in the hours before dawn. It will rise about two minutes earlier each night. On February 1st, Venus rose at 4.54 a.m., and at the end of the month, Venus will rise at 4.09 a.m. Venus is the third brightest body in the sky after the sun and moon, respectively. On Wednesday, Venus will be at its brightest for the year, shining at a magnitude negative 4.6. The brightness of Venus depends not only on its closeness to Earth, but also on its phase. Because Venus is an inferior planet, lying between Earth and the Sun, it goes through phases just like the Moon. And like the Moon, its phase varies depending on its position relative to Earth. It would seem logical that Venus will be at its brightest when it appears fully illuminated like a full moon. However, when Venus is fully illuminated, it is also at its farthest from Earth. Venus reaches its brightest when less than half of its disk is illuminated and is in its crescent phase. At this time, Venus is much closer to Earth than at other times. Venus will be visible in the southeastern sky beginning two hours before sunrise and will be visible right up until sunrise. The astute observer may even be able to see Venus after the sun rises. Look in the southeastern sky before sunrise on Wednesday to see Venus at its brightest for the year. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up.
Good morning. This is Jim and Pat Sanders for Farm and Country, and our program is For the Birds. That awesome sound is the scream of the adult red-tailed hawk. The call is usually made while the hawk is soaring, so whenever we hear it, our eyes go upward in hopes we will sight this great bird. When we do spot it, we see a large, broad-winged bird soaring with wings that stretch out almost five feet. Its mostly white belly hints that it's a red-tailed hawk, but it's only when we see it bank sharply to reveal its coppery tail that we are sure of it. Identification of hawks in flight can be confusing because it's difficult to judge size at a distance, but that red tail is unique to this species. Do note, though, that immature red-tailed hawks have a brown tail. Red-tailed hawks are the most common hawk on our continent and are found in more diverse habitats than any other hawk. It is easily spotted in flight because it is large and soars slowly and because it often perches low on woodland edges and along roadsides. You have an excellent chance of seeing one if you're alert to the possibility, especially since they're here year-round. In the winter, they are easier to spot as they perch in the leafless trees. Their territory ranges from half a square mile to over two square miles, and this depends on the abundance of food sources. Mammals make up the bulk of most red-tailed hawk meals. Frequent victims include voles, mice, wood rats, rabbits, snowshoe hares, jackrabbits, and ground squirrels. The hawks also eat birds, including pheasants, bobwhites, starlings, and blackbirds, as well as snakes and carrion. Individual prey items can weigh anywhere from less than an ounce to more than five pounds. It's worth noting that a typical red tail weighs in at only two to three pounds, so a five-pound prey is about twice its weight. Courting red-tail hawks put on a display in which they soar in wide circles at a great height. The male dives steeply, then shoots up again at an angle nearly as steep. After several of these swoops, he approaches the female from above, extends his legs, and he touches her briefly. Sometimes the pair grab onto one another, clasp talons, and plummet in spirals toward the earth before pulling away. We look forward to being able to see this display someday. Red tails are monogamous and mate for life. An interesting and entertaining book called Red Tails in Love was written about a pair of these birds that mated and built their nest on a window ledge of an apartment on Fifth Avenue in New York City. It created quite a stir among the birders and the residents of the city. We recommend the book highly. Red-tailed hawks build nests of sticks high in trees or places where they have a commanding view. The nests can be three feet wide and both birds help in the building and they line the nest with softer materials like pine needles, shredded bark, corn husks, or whatever is available. In our area, two or three eggs are laid, and the pair incubate them for four to five weeks. After hatching, they work together to feed the chicks until they fledge about six weeks later. The best way to find a red-tailed hawk is to go for a drive, keeping your eyes peeled along fence posts and in the sky. Chances are good that the first hawk you see will be a red-tailed hawk. Just make sure to look for the buteo shape, broad, rounded wings with a short tail. 
Then check field marks, like the dark bars on the leading edge of the wing and that distinctive red tail. Across most of the continent, red tails are more numerous in winter, when birds from the far north arrive to join the birds that live in our area year-round. If you'd like to hear this or any other For the Birds segment, you can find them on our Northeast Pennsylvania Audubon Society website at www.nepaaudubon.org. That's N-E-P-A-A-U-D-U-B-O-N. Just click on the For the Birds graphic and then choose the segment you'd like to hear. This has been Pat and Jim Sanders for Farm and Country, and we're For the Birds. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. I'm going to give you a little sneak preview of what's coming up on Farm and Country. We're going to be talking about forest management. Just to give you an idea, Lori Raskin of DHW Forest Consulting is going to tell you about carbon sequestration, which is getting a lot of publicity nowadays. Lori, what's the importance of forest in the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and in global warming? Ooh, that's a great question, Stephanie. Forests do play a major role in helping us offset carbon that's being put out mostly by humans through burning biofuels. So forests, how do they play a role? Well, they sequester carbon. Trees store carbon and it's done through photosynthesis where trees expel oxygen and then they have stomata which is the site exchange on a leaf to take in carbon dioxide and then it eats it up and processes it as sugar and uses it as energy and whatever waste and byproduct of the carbon that's ingested by the trees stays within the tree or the carbon that gets output by trees are from the leaf litter that eventually decomposes through time. Though trees in itself, the carbon sink that they provide mostly occurs underground. From the research in carbon sequestration, while it's relatively young in understanding how forests can be carbon sinks for us, only about 25% of the carbon that's emitted by humans is sucked up by forests. In the overstory, probably only about 15 to 20% is actually in the trees, but most of it is actually being stored underground. So what you're saying when you say that trees store carbon is that it ends up in the roots and the trunks, right? That's what they mean by store. Correct. Yeah, it ends up in the root system, the trunk, or the leaves. Because of the interest of the public in carbon sequestration, this has had an effect on legislatures. Can you just mention some of the things that they have done? Sure. When it comes to forests and forest management and carbon sequestration, is it's still being researched on the most appropriate means in how to employ forest management regimes to the landscape that's going to be the best way of offsetting carbon to any capacity. 
In New York State, recently, the Climate Leadership Protection Act, the CLCPA, which is in effect right now, was passed by Governor Cuomo. And we are charged with New York State being 80% carbon neutral by 2050. So if we have to do that, but we're only in the beginning phases of understanding how to do it, I don't know how we'll get there by 2050, but gosh, I sure hope we do. Forests are a part of the answer, but not the answer in totality. Organizations such as the Nature Conservancy is offering carbon sequestration programs that you can enroll your forest in. They have formulas to measure carbon and based on the size of trees and how many you have to help pay you or give you a tax break on your forest for essentially leaving it alone or managing it properly so that it can continue to offset carbon through time. I know that the state of Pennsylvania is currently doing that, and I know New York State's getting ready to. It will be administered through the Nature Conservancy, and I know there are other agencies and groups that are trying to offer carbon credits, but we're waiting. Well, thank you, Lori Raskin. We look forward to future segments when Lori is going to talk about forest management, how it's done, who can do it, and what the benefits are. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. This is Radio Catskill volunteer Rosie Starr, producer of Farm and Country. On a recent Friday evening, I was listening to WJFF's local edition of the news and heard Patricio Robayo interviewing farm girl Dana about her podcast, Accidental Farm. Being curious about the content of her work, I navigated to our webpage, wjffradio.org podcast. I found her words humorous and soulful and wrote to Dana. She is delighted to share this with you. Hi, it's Farm Girl here. My real name is Dana, rhymes with banana, and I am the host of the Accidental Farm podcast. It's a daily, five minutes a day, Monday through Friday, and nearly a hundred episodes deep. The Accidental Farm is a little farm that happened quite by accident at the nexus of Delaware, Sullivan, and Ulster counties. It's 65 acres and started with a handful of chickens lent to me by a local farmer. I'm not going to tell you any more now because it'll spoil it, but let me just say this. What happens on this farm, the good, and the bad and everything in between is full of inspiration and connections between rural life and your life, no matter how you live it. I grew up in a small town, spent a couple of decades in a big city, and am now lucky enough to spend most of my time on this farm with adorable donkeys, (coughs) naughty goats, chickens, ducks, honeybees, and a big garden. We, The characters of the Accidental Farm are here for you to share our stories that provide an escape from your day-to-day 
help you get through unloading the dishwasher, a long commute, or as a break between meetings. Murphy, my naughtiest donkey, and Echo, my fattest goat, and I are thrilled to be a part of WJFF's Farm and Country program with host Rosie Starr. We hope you enjoy the stories from the farm as much as we love living them and telling you about them. Sometimes the characters who are part of the accidental farm are not here physically. They participate from afar, kind of like you are today, listening, commenting, sharing, supporting. Any endeavor, like the Accidental Farm and its podcast, needs encouragement. This comes in very different forms. I was going to tell you a different story today, but I couldn't get this one out of my head. Another story can wait until tomorrow or the day after, but this is the one that you're getting. It came to me by way of email from a friend who has been quietly supportive of this little farm, of my writing, and of my podcasts, both this one and Talk Farm to Me. Bill is an accidental friend. I joined a board several years back, and after I was voted in, I sat down for the first meeting next to Bill. He turned to me and asked about my goats. I don't even know how he knew I had goats, but... It was the beginning of a kinship. Bill grew up in the Midwest and spent his summers hurling hay from the back of a truck. The memory of that experience, the smells, the sounds, the sore muscles, the landscape, are as fresh for him now as if it were yesterday. Bill, now 88 years old, has had an illustrious career in public radio. Some call him the grandfather of public radio. Bill Seamering. He was a member of the founding board of NPR and the author of its original mission statement. You can look him up. But Bill, being the humblest sort, would argue that farming is the grandfather of radio. Maybe that's how he came to it, inadvertently, magically. Broadcasting, you know, is the art of sowing seeds by grabbing a handful and letting them slip through your fingers as you pass your long arm over the land. Back in the earliest days of radio in Wisconsin, where Bill hails from, broadcasting lent its name to the art of sharing with farmers via radio, the kind of weather that was on the horizon so that they could prepare better to protect and manage their crops. You could take my word for all of this, but let's let Bill tell us himself. I interviewed him in 2020 and have never used the material from that interview before. I think you will like Bill, too, just from listening to him. I grew up in the Midwest in Madison, Wisconsin, and um, that's the home, actually, of, of radio and farming, because the very origins of radio were to provide farmers with market information and weather information. The very first broadcasts were for farmers. And the origins of the word broadcast, of course, comes from farming, of sowing, of scattering seeds. So my roots are deep, and I went to a true own country school and learned art and science and nature studies and so on by radio. The teacher would tune in the radio from the Wisconsin School of the Air 
twice a day and I would listen. And that was where I learned that radio is a source of information and imagination. And it's still the same. Every time I turn on the radio, I learn something new. And then when I was about 14, my uh, math teacher said she had a farm and would I like to work on it in the summer? So I did. And her husband produced a certified seed and also went farm to farm, combining and uh, baling hay. So I really enjoyed that and I still enjoy it. I would still love to hop on a tractor and disc in the spring. <laughs> and so it is only natural that our friendship took hold. Talking about farming, animals, the sounds and smells, the satisfaction it provides, the solitude and the togetherness of it, and the lessons that can come from a farm. It's part of the point of this podcast, really. Farm stories, yes, but there's more there if you're listening. What happens here has implications everywhere. Really, do you get that from listening here? I think Bill does. Here he is again. You learn to follow through. You learn and your work is never done on a farm. And there's no let up really in in what's to do on a farm. But also just the importance of hard work, you know. And at noon, we would go in to, to a farmer's kitchen and have lunch. And they would listen to the radio, the farm program on university radio station. Then I learned how important radio was to their livelihood. So then when I, when I uh, graduated from high school, I worked at that very same radio station. So that was the beginning of my career in radio. I hear from Bill from time to time. He shares something with me to listen to, something to read. We share a love for farm writing, pensive and connected to the land and nature and the cycle of things. Just yesterday, Bill reached out to me to tell me that he was enjoying my winter writing. I have a newsletter, and I write short pieces on Instagram, and, of course, here. In response, Bill shared two poems with me. We, Bill and I, have done this before. Mary Oliver, Wendell Berry, Robert Bly. I will look back, and maybe I'll share with you a little more from Bill in the future. But for today... This poem is the one. The Cold by Wendell Berry How exactly good it is to know myself in the solitude of winter, my body containing its own warmth, divided from all the cold, and to go separate and sure among the trees, cleanly divided, thinking of you perfect too in your solitude, your life withdrawn into your own keeping, To be clear, poised in perfect self-suspension toward you as though frozen, and having known fully the goodness of that, it will be good also to melt. Good day from the Accidental Farm. If you'd like to reach out with a poem or a thought or a message, try me on Instagram at xoxofarmgirl, or if you're old school like Bill, you can email me at farmgirl at xoxofarmgirl.com. I would love to hear from you. Stay warm. XO. 
scroll down the Radio Catskill webpage, wjffradio.org slash podcast, to find a growing list of podcast productions. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Thanks to Jim and Pat Sanders from the Northeast Audubon Society for their archived report on red-tail hawks. And to farm girl Dana for sharing with our audience her Accidental Farm podcast episode with her guest, Bill Seemering. Special thanks goes to our guest forest consultant, Laurie Raskin, from her company, DHW, speaking on the subject of carbon sequestration. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit, taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Starting in the 1950s, African Americans on the radio began changing the country. It was just a strong, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. But today, lots of people feel like black radio is a thing of the past. Most quote-unquote black radio 